Welcome to Rock Facts, our podcast about uh, geology. I'm Allison Truge, and I'm here with Brian Hamilton. Hi, uh, this is actually about Over the Garden Wall and not about geology, but I'll, I'll take it. What, uh, what rock facts do we have today? Well, Brian, there are many rocks in the wilderness. The wilderness? Is that where this uh, television show takes place? What television show? Over the Garden Wall. Also, there is a wrestler who goes by the pseudonym The Rock. But he is not a geologist, as I once thought. But a wrestler, and now very, very well-known movie and television actor. Uh, wasn't he a chef at one point, too? Was he? I don't know. Could, could you smell it? He was cooking? He went to my high school. <laughs> you said that last time. We're talking about Over the Garden Wall, uh, episode 2 of 10, Hard Times at the Husking Bee. This is the episode that, for a lot of people, you and me especially, uh, this is the one where it really clicked, that this was going to be a really, really, really special television show. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think that this episode is where I, as a watcher of this show for the very first time, uh, really grew attached to all of the characters and really grew attached to their story. Me too. Like the, I have notes about this later on, but the way that the story tends to happen and continue throughout the episode feels a little ham-fisted, but when there's so much other stuff going on, uh, they need to be economical with what they have in the episode. And I feel like for the sake of tone and all the weird stuff that happens in Pottsfield, I love that they spent the time doing that and not so much establishing Beatrice as a member of the party completely yet. Well, here's what I think actually happens in this episode. And I think that I, I've never really thought about it this way, but now on the like, I don't know, 15th watching that you and I just did just now, um, I realized it is that um, I was saying in the last episode that the first episode, it doesn't necessarily grab the watcher on their first watch because like this thing happens where they're introducing a story that we've all heard like a million times before, like two children are in the woods. Um, This episode does something that I think at least let me know, like, okay, this is something to actually pay attention to and not just like a children's story retold because uh, they take, again, two stories that are very well told. Um, the first being a magical woodland creature comes by to help them. And the second being um, they stumble into a town. And as soon as we get to Pottsfield, it becomes wildly apparent that they're going to flip this like common script on its head. <laughs> um, and I think it kind of let me know as a watcher, I'm, I'm kind of assuming this happened the first time, maybe I'm giving myself a little too much credit, <laughs> but I feel like this is the point where it becomes wildly apparent that they're going to take these tropes and change them and make them different and unique. Yeah, I, I I was thinking on this walk, on this watch through, um, because we kind of open with Beatrice, um, well, we actually open with Wart and Greg and their... Uh, Greg is really annoying Wirt. And so Wirt's like, oh, okay, I'm going to walk 10 steps ahead of you. Um, And then Wirt gets distracted because he hears, now we know Beatrice, uh, stuck in a bush. I'm making air quotes, but you can't hear that. So hear it in my voice. Stuck in the (laughs) bush. I Um, have uh, in my notes here, yeah, that's exactly what happens. Uh, It's very obvious on different watch-throughs. She's not in any actual trouble. 
No, absolutely not. Um, and I think this is something that like wildly, wildly surprised me the first time around. I had no idea that Beatrice was going to betray them until um, the frog boat episode. I had no idea that that was going to happen. I just kind of like thought that she was acting a little bit weird because it's kind of played up, or at least I thought the first time it was played up as Beatrice having a crush on Wirt as to why she doesn't want them to like go to Adelaide's. And now that I'm watching this episode again, like, man, is it heavy handed that she is not really what she's saying. You two are lost kids with no purpose in life, right? (laughs) Is one of her lines. Yeah. And I can't believe that I didn't catch it on the first watch. But I think what happens, and this is like a really clever move on the part of the people that made the show, um, is that up until that point, the the whole first episode, actually, um, we're kind of taught to suspend our disbelief and so as soon as we meet Beatrice I feel like the first time I watched it I kind of played it off as like oh this is like kind of a ridiculous heightened uh fantasy thing um and we're just kind of like skipping the gratuities of like uh or you know the niceties of like meeting this character and having her have a real motive because she doesn't have a real motive because this is just a story about two boys in the woods and it doesn't really matter well, there's, it's a weird tightrope act to walk, right? Where the first moment they meet each other is Greg asking for a wish, which is not actually a witch <laughs> uh, or a wish. And, uh, Wirt is anxious about getting to Pottsfield and Beatrice seems to have this weird ulterior motive. Like, okay, it's here. I'm here to help you now. And that moment is a little rushed and glossed over, but it doesn't matter because it means that the three of them get to be together for the rest of the episode and the rest of the series. And as it continues that, Beatrice is now a member of the party. Uh, the, the last line there is, uh, okay, so how can I help you? I'll think of my wish later. Ugh. And it's a nice little way to make Beatrice a part of the party, even though you're right, they do skip all those niceties. Well, and it's a trick that they do. They've literally done it already in this series, but as a first time watcher, you wouldn't notice, is that they totally skip over and gloss over a very important detail in the beginning. And so you're taught to believe oh, this isn't something that I should worry myself with. Um, Like the first time in the first episode, Wirt and Greg are like suddenly in the woods. And since it's glossed over, you as an audience member are sort of taught to be like, okay, I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, And then when Beatrice is introduced, it's like she kind of like has this has this spiel that doesn't really sound real. But again, it's like the show teaching you as an audience. It's like, oh, you're not really supposed to worry about this. Exactly. This is the first mention of Adelaide of the Pasture, the good woman of the woods who is going to bring you home. And it gives... This episode really does set up the structure for the rest of the show in that it's mostly misadventures or misadventures, not misadventures, like adventures on the island of mist. I haven't played that game, but it's it's misadventures. Little bits of character development are occurring, but Adelaide really is the backbone of at least the first half of the series. And this is her first mention. I really love the arc of this episode. Um, We can get into details a little bit later, but I love so with the first episode, we're kind of like plunged into darkness pretty immediately. And the comic relief is Greg. And that's like a really cool dynamic. But the arc in this episode is like, they are in the woods, and then they find this like, really cute little village. And then it's like a little bit creepy that like, they're pumpkin people. But then like, we see their town and all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of it's very charming. And then all of a sudden, it takes a turn for like, the very dark. Um, 
And I think that arc worked really beautifully in this episode to set up the rest of the series, which is why I always tell my friends to power through the first episode, not because it's bad, because it's not. It's a really good episode. But I think episode two is really where... um the arc and the plot work really shines for Over the Garden Wall. Exactly, exactly. And that, both sides of that coin, the charm and the scare, are both extremely fall. The first shots of this episode at all are uh, geese flying through the sky, a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful sky. Uh, the leaves falling and changing colors and uh, turkeys gobbling all over. It is the most fall you can get. And then, of course, Halloween means that when you get to the scary parts, it is entirely October. <laughs> it is so purely October. And I love how they did both in one go. They had, like, the charming autumn festival, you know, bobbing for apples of chill fall. And then scary evil pumpkin Enoch dude uh, <laughs> as Halloween fall. And it's also got this, like, air of sinisterness to it where uh it's not like until we get to the part where the skeletons are coming out of the ground it's not like sinister with a capital s um it's like it's kind of a little bit creepy but kind of good spirited in a way even though like the town is creepy we're like still made to think like you know with this beautiful like this beautiful music that's courtesy of chris that's courtesy of chris isaac um who they actually uh side note designed that uh score for because you know he's like a a famous crooner um and they actually designed that song and a couple of the other songs that he's featured in um for chris isaac and having him be a part of the soundtrack is not a thing that they thought they'd be able to do until it actually happened and so i think that's a really interesting behind the scenes moment for this show um but with that sort of like crooner like really easygoing soundtrack we're not we're not like again with the air of like light sinister sinister light sinister diet um is this idea that like the town itself, like, it's called Pottsfield, which is, like, a reference to a potter's field, which is, I don't know if you know, Brian, but it's a graveyard that, like, um, you know, commoners were buried in, or, like, people were, like, uh, you know, that that was, like, the whole idea behind it. Um, Clever. It's kind of, like, a cute thing, and if you notice, like, the reference, it's, like, a really cute thing to notice, and it makes it, like, kind of creepy, but not, like, overall sinister. So once they get to the town, uh, you mentioned on our very first watch through years ago that I noticed a line, uh, oh, sorry, I was just looking for a phone. And that got me thinking about, wait, when does this take place? Because if he knows what a phone is, even though they're dressed like very like early 19th century, but they're in this village and there's all these different things. Ha th that little anachronism got me thinking a lot about what this show is and what it means and why it's there, which I really, really loved having uh, in the, my back pocket. I was so scared the first time that we watched this that you that you noticed that because I absolutely did not notice that in the first time. Or maybe I did notice it and it's just like yet another thing that like as an ex like a person that's experiencing this world and I'm not necessarily a nitpicker when it comes to like, I don't know, my miniseries on Cartoon Network. So like I just maybe chalk that up for like oh okay it's like a little anachronism and i'm not really supposed to notice it so i'm just gonna like let it slide uh they're exploring Pottsfield, and then they get to this autumn festival which again is the most fall you could possibly have like for me this is when the show really gets peak fall 
but although then, they're also like like dancing around what's supposed to be a maypole and it's autumn anyway <laughs> well it's extremely <laughs> it's extremely uh wicker man right yeah it super is it's it's creepy cult like which is why even though it's ostensibly innocent when they walk in uh they immediately say this is creeping me out let's 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 go immediately and then we get little hints of different uh, villagers saying things like oh aren't aren't you a little early for us well, the thing that I love most about uh, this episode, uh, it's such a cute little moment that I think, again, rings very true for the rest of the series, is that, like, um, basically, they come in and they see all these pumpkin people, and all of a sudden, they're, like, a little bit freaked out, and then they're like, okay, don your pumpkins, they say to, like, Wirt and Greg, and they're like, oh, you're wearing pumpkins, and they're like, um, of course we are what do you think we are? And so in that moment, it's like this really cute moment because you're like, oh, I, th- I really expected something kind of sinister to happen. But it is sinister because they're all skeletons underneath the pumpkins. I love that moment where, of course, pumpkins can't move on themse- by themselves, but neither can skeletons without muscles and other things controlling them. It's so great. I, it's just, it's a con- like such a classic dupe that this show does that like I so appreciate on the second watch. Talking uh, the Miyazaki element for a second, there's, if this is Miyazaki for Americana, there is nothing more American than fall because of Thanksgiving and the uh, apples, pumpkins, that fiddle music that all adds up to such a quintessentially American experience. Well, I'll also say that, like, of course, other countries and regions experience fall. Uh, (laughs) Well, yes, yes. Or autumn, really, that other places call it. I think in the UK, they call it autumn instead of fall. Please correct us. We're ignorant Americans. Um, (laughs) But something that I have heard um, is that, like, in England, for instance, England is not the rest of the world. It is one other country in the rest of the world. Using England as an example, um, they don't celebrate fall in the same way that Americans do. Like, for the most part, people, like, don't go apple picking, and they don't, like go to corn mazes and stuff like that. That's what I mean by quintessentially American, yes. So, like, all of those little cultural things, like, I think most people I know, I know that this, of course, is not true for everyone, but most, like, other Americans I know um, living in Boston, like, autumn, fall is our favorite time of year. And, like, granted, it is the reason to live in Boston is this, like, weird four-week period where everything is absolutely beautiful and then the weather just punishes us, like, the rest of the year that we live here. Um, But yeah, no, I totally agree that, like, there's this Miyazaki element um, where it is, like, a sort of folklore and it sets it particularly in America. It really does. Uh, I also love the fun humor of the there's a guy who's carving a pumpkin and then looks up all creaky necked and it's very uh what's the word i'm looking for it's comedy it's very deadpan but also kind of creepy it's it's funny and creepy at the same time a lot of people i notice when they watch it laugh at that moment yeah absolutely there's also, uh, I, I love this, there's a conversation about uh, people don't tend to leave Pottsfield, and the thing that hushes the entire barn, like a western bar, like, oh, who just walked into this bar? Like, the thing that... I'm sorry, could you repeat that, Brian? I don't think we got that on the recording well enough. Nope. Uh, the thing <laughs> that that shushes the entire barn is, who's leaving Pottsfield? The thing that this whole series reminds me of, actually, on the, like, 15th run-through, it's a really great, like, Big Fish moment. Have you ever seen Big Fish? I have not seen Big Fish. Enlighten me. So, first of all, Big Fish is great. 
<laughs> um, it's like ridiculous, but also kind of like in an over the garden wall storytelling sort of way, like tall tale kind of way. Um, and there's this point where the main character, Ewan McGregor, who is uh, my husband, um, he ends up like in this town and people are kind of like, well, people don't like leave. And they're just like kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's this like little magical town that doesn't really like, I don't want to say they don't really exist. Like it's, it's this magical little town in the middle of nowhere. And people are like, well, people don't like leave. And so he stays there for a really long time. Um, and that's really what this reminded me of. And I didn't realize it until like now, like the 20th watching where I was like, oh man, that's like a big fish moment. <laughs> that's really and cool. And so I think when I first saw that, it like was more than like a, it, it wasn't creepy to me and it never has been. And that made me dissect like, why don't I think that's creepy is because it makes me think like, oh, it's like that other movie, Big Fish, where it's not like a Pleasantville thing. It's more of like a, oh, this is just like a magical realism thing. Exactly. Exactly. Can we talk about Enoch for a second? The Please. really creepy uh, sentient maypole that is a pumpkin. <laughs> Yeah, so we didn't know this until Brian and I were both Googling and making notes at the same time. We were both <laughs> looking up Chris Isaac. I was looking up Chris Isaac because um, the little song that happens, what's it called? It's um, Patient is the Night. Patient is the Night. Um, that song is one of my favorite in the entire soundtrack. And I was Googling Chris Isaac because I knew that was who played uh, who played Enoch with his low, rumbly voice. Hello, children. How are you? We must keep you here for murder. No, not murder. And so that is such a really cool moment that, like, it's both this, like, really important person to the soundtrack where they were able to have him in this, like, crooner's melody that is also very reminiscent of Big Fish. Um, <laughs> but also they're able to have him actually playing Enoch. It's awesome. Uh, what else? What leads up to that is uh, the sentence of a few hours of manual labor for breaking and entering, trespassing, and property destruction or something. There was like a, a weird list of things that he said that made... It, it was a nice moment of ramping up the tension of this really creepy pumpkin telling them to stay. But it was also kind of sweet in that, oh, just a few hours of manual labor. Help us out with a few little things. So, okay, I want to talk about something that happens, like, in between all of this. Mm -hmm. There is a logical inconsistency that happens in this episode that bothers me. Go ahead, caller. And <laughs> I would say that, like, again, I, I admitted that I am not a nitpicker when it comes to this. I absolutely adore magical realism. One of my favorite authors is Amy Bender, who, like is an incredibly, like, talented, magical, realist, like, novelist and, like, short story writer. And, like, so I, a girl can suspend her disbelief, and I do, often. But something happens in this episode where they walk in, and they are clearly alive people that have bodies that are not decomposed, they are not skeletons. And when they get to the party, one of the pumpkins goes up to them and they're like, don your pumpkins and join us. And then all of a sudden, everyone's shocked that they don't want to stay in Pottsfield. Why? They are clearly not dead. We don't know how these people became pumpkins. We see two examples later where they dig up two skeletons. We don't know if maybe some of those people have resigned themselves from this mortal coil and decided to be pumpkins for all eternity and immediately in their fleshy sacks uh, don a pumpkin and decompose inside their pumpkin. Who knows? I, I don't think that that's what it is, though. I think it's like this kind of convenient thing that happens that you're not supposed to think about that like, oh, so... 
all of them are skeletons inside of the pumpkins. What I don't understand. So I guess what they're trying to set up and imply is that, like, if you go to Pottsfield and you really love it there, then, like, they kill you and they bury you and you're a skeleton and then they dig you back up and then you, like, put on your pumpkin and then, like, you join the party. That's super fun. But, like, they're clearly not skeletons. (laughs) They're clearly, like, just human people. And so when the girl goes, aren't you a bit early? They're... Yes, they're alive. (laughs) And so what I don't understand is, like, clearly the move is, like, okay, I guess if you'd like to stay, we're going to kill you. But instead what they set up is kind of like, oh, don your pumpkins. So when Wirt says, when when the skeletons come out of the ground and Wirt looks and he's like, they're all skeletons. Like, are they? Brian and I had a podcast about Over the Garden Wall about two years ago, and we postulized that, like, maybe some of the people in the skeletons were not, or some of the people in the pumpkins were not exactly skeletons. Maybe they were, like, corpses. I don't know. But, like, I don't know. I think that's a logical inconsistency that doesn't necessarily make sense. It's a, it's good storytelling and the fact that, like, it tells a good story and that, like, you're, you think to yourself, oh, there are people in pumpkins because we are invited to join as people in pumpkins. But then you learn that they're skeletons. I had never thought about that until we talked about this now. Uh, I like your theory a lot better than mine, where they would outright kill you and turn you into a pumpkin after. But who knows? Maybe it's, say, the soil that needs to imbue like uh, life into these skeletons without anything else. Who knows? But I'm willing to accept this weird narrative leap for the sake of this absolutely gorgeous 11 minutes of television. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that it's a, like... I don't think there is an explanation. I think it's, like, just kind of not necessarily thought-out storytelling. And I would say that that narrative leap, again, this show is constantly teaching you where to suspend your disbelief. That leap, because it is literally illogical, like, it doesn't make sense, um, it leads you to not necessarily question the things that have happened already. Um, Because they can be explained away. Like, these two boys in the woods. Like, I don't know. It's explainable. They're just in the woods. Like, that bird. uh, Like, Beatrice kind of, like, saying, like, you're two kids on your own, right? With no purpose in life? Um, That could be explained away like, oh, it's like a, it's a bit of humor. Like, not meant to be, like, an actual, like, serious part of the plot. It's just, like, kind of a laugh. Um, And so the narrative leaps made in this episode set up the fact that, like, you're supposed to suspend your disbelief even more, and in a way that I would argue is acceptable for most watchers. It makes it so that the payoff in the end is kind of like, oh, why didn't you think of all of these things? You could have caught it. And then my favorite, favorite, favorite moment in the episode is when the parade float of pumpkins and Enoch comes and finds them in the field after they discover a skeleton. And they're playing this funeral march, I guess. Except it's actually Come Wayward Souls. Wait, really? Yeah, I knew that you didn't catch that. Nope. (laughs) In the background, they go, do, 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 which is Come Wayward Souls, the folk song that appears later as the Beast. That is amazing. I had not noticed that. Yeah. Uh, But they're playing this song, and there's a cut where they're far off away. You can see how big Enoch is in the distance, and then a split second later, time's up, and they're right behind Wirt. And again, it's not creepy or scary but it's sinister 
I love it so, so, so much. And the music then becomes, I don't know if it's the same song. Is it still Come Wayward Souls when uh, they join work they at the taps. Whole? They do taps. Okay, they do taps, and which is not ominous like, at all. <laughs> it's, it's like a theme on taps. Something that I've noticed, like, you know, again, on the 20th rewatch, is that literally almost every single, like, sting, every single, like, exit and entrance music in this show, I would say about 90% of it, is a callback to something else, even if the theme hasn't appeared yet in the show. It's beautiful. Like, uh, when we get to uh, one of the episodes where they're at the schoolhouse, um, the song that she's playing on the piano is Patient is the Night, which is introduced in this episode. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Alison Trude with a musical ear. So literally, like, every single piece of music that happens, it's all called back, which I really appreciate as a lover of like musicals. It's kind of like a reprise that happens. Um, but yeah, this show does that better than most cartoons I've ever seen. Uh, there's also the moment where Wirt is concerned that Beatrice and Greg left him, which sets up a lot of tension later about whose allegiances lie where, which comes to a head when it's reveal- revealed that Adelaide is betraying them and bring them to be uh, servants to Adelaide. And I think it is a nice moment to say, oh, wait, no, they left me and let him panic with the creepy pumpkins for a little while. Yeah, and something that we didn't talk about at the beginning of the episode, Beatrice goes to Greg and she says, hey, how about we ditch your brother? Which is like the first thing that she says and it makes no sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And I don't know why as a watcher the first time, maybe I wasn't paying attention yet because like I wasn't like as bewitched by the show yet. But like I, that's something that is established is that like she's trying to get one of them away from the other until she realizes that that won't happen. Exactly. She's trying to divide and conquer and make them weaker so that they're more susceptible to going to Adelaide's. Right. So they escape and it ends on, this is something I didn't notice until now. It ends on the the silhouette of them walking into the distance. That is the art for the show, like the canonical like DVD cover art for the show, that little silhouette at the end of this first episode, which again was aired at the end of the first night over the garden wall came out. So they played episodes one and two back to back in one half hour slot. So, and so that this, was a really good setup. Exactly. This is the way to set up the rest of the show. And also, as we we actually rewound this part because we both realized that we've never like talked about it, is <laughs> there's this like little bit at the end where there's a leaf and it's flying through the wind and then it gets caught on a fence and the music kind of lingers in a way that's like a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and we were both like, well, I guess, you know, it's just kind of like they're stuck as the leaf is like stuck in the fence. Because the line there is, I think the woodsman's directions were bad. I also, I don't know if this is actually real. I'm sure that it's not. But in my brain, uh, as a person who loves both Miyazaki and Over the Garden Wall, and I really think that like the two inform each other, and I think most people would agree with me. Um, it reminds me of, there's this scene in Princess Mononoke that as a person who like was really like, falling in love with animation. I think I was like 13 the first time I saw it. Um, There's a scene where a leaf falls on her face. Um, I can't exactly think of when it happens in the movie, but there's a scene where that happens. And 
It would have been really convenient for the animators to just let the leaf fall straight on her face, like on her nose. But because it's Miyazaki and that's way too easy, they have the leaf kind of like fall on her eye, which kind of creates this like sensation of discomfort. At least for me, it does because it's like not necessarily like centered in the screen. It's just like kind of a random thing that happens. And this scene kind of reminds me of that and almost feels like a callback, even though I'm sure that I'm reading into it way too much. No, not at all. I mean, it's a leaf that's falling in a place where it shouldn't really be and the piece of work is calling it out explicitly for us to talk about and think about so there's definitely a reason for both of them to be there well and i think that like that at least for like me as a 13 year old person falling in love with animated things like that really made me think about the choices that animators make and over the garden wall is another show that makes me think that because the animation is so beautiful and the leaf going on that path like it's It's not typical animation. It's not easy. Like, the way that they made that leaf go on was, like, a really kind of, like, convoluted way to show that happening. But also, that kind of, like, tells you about the journey that we're about to go on. Exactly, exactly. Well, Allison Truge, once again, we've tripled the runtime of the episode with our podcast. (laughs) If only there wasn't so much to talk about. If only, but it's over the garden wall. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time.